Nate Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. I'm very excited. I've got Agile royalty in the house today. So James Brenning is here. Um, part of the history of everything that we do. So thank you for making time for this. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's uh, um, my pleasure and uh, my honor to join you. And I'm, I'm very excited about the topic because this is, in my, my history, this is the first Agile thing that I heard anybody talk about, and I didn't know what it was called. But you're doing a session at the Agile Conference this summer on test-driven development. Um, and that's what we're going to mostly focus on. Before we do that, would you mind um, describing, like, how do you explain yourself and your background to the people that, that may not know a ton about the kind of work that you do? Okay, well, uh, so what I do uh, is uh, help people, uh, help engineers learn uh, the practices that can help you be successful with iterative and incremental development. Uh, there's a name for that. It's called extreme programming. Uh, I bumped into extreme programming in uh, 1999. I was working with Bob Martin, Uncle Bob, everybody knows him. Yeah. Uh, and we had an arrangement with Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham and Martin Fowler and Ron Jeffries to, so that we could learn extreme programming and then to start to teach people. And so I got involved in it in 1999. Okay. And uh, as a embedded systems programmer of 20 years at that point, I was ready for this because I had suffered through two decades of what I call debug later programming, yeah, uh, where you write a bunch of code, which is just peppered with bugs, um, and then you debug until it's ready, and then test-driven, a proactive way of working, where in embedded systems, one of the things you don't have is hardware uh, okay. until late in the cycle. So you have nowhere to run your code. And so this was like eye-opening to me, and I thought maybe it would work, even though it sounded really strange. And so... Uh, now, pretty much my business uh, is around helping people learn those things. Okay. And learn you're leaving out the fact that you went skiing in 2001. Well, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. As we were enthusiasts of uh, extreme programming, and uh, Bob Martin had arranged to have the Lightweight Method Summit, he and Alistair were negotiating a place, and Alistair uh, suggested Snowbird, Utah. And Bob said, hey, do you want to go with a Snowbird Utah with uh, with me to talk about lightweight processes? It's like, I'm all in. I mean, I love to ski, so I've skied all my whole, my whole life. Okay. <laughs> it went last month, as a matter of fact. Wow. But uh, uh, so, yeah, I went to go skiing and to hang out with guys that I really respected and was learning a lot from. Okay. And so uh, that's, you know, my small um, contribution there is, I don't know, somebody said, a friend of mine said, oh, you told me afterwards that you brought the note cards. And you know, one of the things, one of the things as an extreme programming uh, person you would guys do. You all had your yeah, index cards in your little pocket holders. You would have note cards. <laughs> and uh, uh, another little thing that we tried to do uh, in the 80s, I learned as part of total quality management, was find areas you agree on okay. as a way to make progress. If you just focus on what you disagree on, you're going to get stuck. But if you can find the things you agree on, then you can move forward on those. And okay. so... I don't know. I had the note cards at least. I don't so know if, if, if people don't know what we're talking about, this was the creation <laughs> of the Agile Manifesto. So you're one of the yeah. listed as one of the authors. Um, and when did you start programming? Like around what year? Uh, let's see. So uh, you're asking that question. So I tried to avoid programming starting in about 1970. Okay. Because in high school, a friend of mine was probably 71. Actually, a friend of mine was programming. Okay. punch cards and it looked horrible and I thought stay away from that and then in uh, engineering school it's like well you have to take a programming class with this 
thing. It's like, oh, yeah, darn. Okay, I'll do it. And it's like you, you wait, can curse this, freely on this podcast if you want to. It's totally this fun. is fun. <laughs> and somebody would pay me for that fun. It's like okay, wow. so I kept uh, I kept going with with uh, so you've programming been after that, right? So I, I discovered it was fun, and so the uh, first time I got paid for it was in 1979. Okay, so you've been at this for a while, and one of the things that I just picked up when we were getting ready for the interview is you still talk like a programmer. You're still writing code. You're still building stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm always really interested in, when you've been doing this as long as you have, what sparks you to keep like, to stay excited about it? I mean, you're not like one of those people who just like coasting on what you've done in the past. You're still building new things. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, when, when I first was learning, nobody said, hey, I think I'm going to go into IT. Or I'm going to go into programming. Nobody said that because nobody knew what it was. It was a thing, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, when I told my parents, it's like, what's that? You know, it's like. Uh, the future. You know, so, well, I didn't know that. It's like, yeah. no, it's kind of fun and someone would pay me. You know, it's like, so uh, I enjoyed it. And luckily, um, so I did my thing in management. I worked my way up at Teradyne, the big company I worked for, where I met Bob Martin early in my okay. career. Um so I kind of worked my way up that, got to feel what management was like, got to feel what working for the big boss was like. I didn't like that so much. And uh, so I started consulting with Bob so I could, you know, stay technical. I was starting to drift from technical. Um, I still was always into it. And I always paid too much attention to the people I was managing. They didn't like that <laughs> because because I wanted to stay interested in it. You know, so yeah. I found that the better thing for me to do would be to, to stay technical. And consulting was a good route to do that in. Okay. And I got to work with one of the best, Bob Martin, in that area. I got to learn a lot from him. And, uh, you know, so uh, now today, how do I do it? Well, uh, out of a, a bit out of necessity, uh, in 2015, I didn't want to travel as much as I was traveling. Okay. And uh, the way that I do training, it uses some tooling where it doesn't really matter where I am because the servers where people are doing the programming exercises are in the cloud somewhere. Yeah. Even though I'm in the same room with them, the exercises were hosted in the cloud. Okay. And this is a development I, something I adopted about 10 years ago. And so in uh, 2015, I thought, well, you could do this remotely. And uh, so I started, I offered the first one and had a bunch of people sign up, which was shocking to me. And I thought it went horribly. And they said, it wasn't so bad. Awesome. And that okay. was enough to for me to go and solve the next problem. And I had a client that wanted to send a lot of people through it. So I got to spend about six months making it better. And now I've had about nine years of making wow. it better. And so I've, I've invested a lot in my tooling and my website. And so it's kind of fun for me to build that. Uh, and uh, then I use it for on-site delivery, which I don't do very much, but I did some last week. Okay. Um, uh, remote delivery. And I'm trying to make a fully self-paced course because, you know, my wife says I should retire and I don't really feel like retiring. Uh, so that's but awesome, I can keep I can keep going with this, you know, for a while. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can touch more people with that. I've been helping yeah. some people in the third world uh, that I might not get a chance to uh, teach anything to, you know, okay. so or help I think learn. It's, it's really cool that you're not looking to retire. You're not looking to punch out. I mean, you still find, I can hear it in your voice, joy and excitement in the work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I do have a fun time with it. So, 
And then I'm also doing other fun stuff, you know, so you can see my pool table back here. I'd like more time for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, it's all about the balance. Um, yeah. So you're going to give a talk at the Agile conference uh, called Your First Test Driven Development. And one of the things that, that I was hoping we could cover today is for the uninitiated, which like I teach CSM and CSPO classes, and I still get people who don't know what I'm talking about when I say who knows what TDD is. And I pull up the XP page and they don't know, they've never even heard of it. Yep. So how would you explain test-driven development to somebody who is not from a software background, who doesn't know about extreme programming? Well, let's see. So it's actually a kind of a challenging thing to explain, but um, at its core is where, what I've come to discover from <laughs> learning at first and then retrospecting and being asked questions about it. Uh, the real power of it is small, working in small increments. Okay. And um, so you've got to, you know, in the old days, it was you could ask once a year for something. And so if you can only ask once a year, you ask for everything. Yeah. And then we'd go off and work for a year and deliver what you didn't want yeah. because you either changed your mind or we got it wrong or, you know, there was no meeting change. of the minds. Yeah. And so what if we could work in a, in a short cycle? And this is, you know, the basis of why you're, why you're a CSPO trainer is because somebody said, Hey, we actually could work in short slices. Right. Um, and what test driven is, is one of the, one of the practices that enables development to be successful in iterative and incremental develop in iter iteratively and incrementally developing a product. Okay. Right. So um, without it, I've got a little uh, diagram. I think now is a good time for me to, to bring sure. up. Um, it can be very painful. So, you know, most, can you see that screen? Yep. Okay. So over on the, uh, as I'm looking on the left, the negative side development when they're, they're doing waterfall and, they're, and then a, a certified scrum master comes in to say, hey, no, we're delivering something every week or every two weeks. They think, you know, I'm not allowed to do quality work, uh, you know, because development has been told, taught yeah. and reinforced that we have to think a lot before we do any work. And I'm not against thinking, but there's a cycle that we have to do, which is think until there's diminishing returns on that thinking when you're guessing too much on top of guesses and then put that work to action. So work on the most important things or discover some risk or whatever. But in the left side, when we're go figure it all out and then go do it, this is a tough bridge, a tough uh, message to say, give me something in two weeks. Mm -hmm. Other end of the spectrum is if we actually had the engineering practices uh, that and the engineers understood them, uh, working in short cycles is no big deal for them. And uh, I came to this discovery kind of early. And I think the guys I was working with, uh, Bob Martin and Ron Jeffries as, and Kent Beck, as we were developing the training, the first time we did the training was we started off with planning and worked our way to technical practices. Okay. Um, and everybody was confused. Well, how could I do a little thing? I can't, there's no such thing as a little thing. Right. And, when we said, forget about planning, let's do some test driven. We did that on days one and two, and we introduced planning on day three or four. And it's like, this planning is easy because I know how to slice my work into small pieces now. And okay. so here's a spectrum, which uh, in this diagram here, uh, which kind of at the left side, 
we're not sure what to do, but at the right side, the future's bright because I can work in whatever you tell me what's important to deliver to the customer. And we'll, you know, I'll help you decide that too. And we can deliver things reliably in short, in short cycles. Okay. And so, so, uh, do you find that people still struggle to understand how to slice the work down into small deliverable pieces? Well, I'm, I'm always surprised by that when they, they haven't even heard of it yet. Yeah. Well, yes, I do find that that's the case. Most of my clients are adopters of Scrum mm -hmm. and um, test driven is a second thought, right? An afterthought. Somebody on the team gets this bright idea. They heard about it and they think it might work or they are an early adopter. They read my book, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. And they think maybe this would work. So one of the questions I often ask people when I come in is like, uh, so do you work in a scrum or an iterative environment and people's hands go up and it's like, does anybody ever not finish what they signed up for in the beginning of their iteration and all the hands go all up the hands go up. And does anybody finish what they signed up in the iteration and very few hands go up? Yeah. It's like, okay, so you're going to learn some new, I'm one of the people that took my class labeled this a superpower. Okay. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not sure about superpower, but you're going to get some skills here that will allow you to more successfully slice your work. So instead of saying, I never finish my work in an iteration, you're going right. to say, sometimes I do. Okay. <laughs> About half the time I finish everything I signed up for. And uh, when I don't, I'm missing one thing. Or no, sometimes we actually do two extra things. Right? Yeah. Okay. So sometimes, do you ever get more done than you said? Well, almost no one ever raises their hand for that one. Uh, but if you were slicing your things, your work, your deliverables into smaller pieces, yeah, it's possible. And another possibility of that too is if I had a big thing and I sliced it into five little things, I might discover a few more little things along the way. But you might discover you only need three of the small things instead of all five, right? So, oh, okay, uh, right. So you, uh, and I, I'll probably be quoting Martin Fowler. You know the. One of the big advantages of Agile is find the things you're not going to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, okay. That's one of the main efficiency efficiencies is to uh, find things that you're not going to do. So. So to me, it does seem a little bit like a superpower in that it's a different way of thinking about how you approach the things that you do in that you want yeah. the, the test to be written first. And, and I also want to just highlight one thing you, you're talking about delivering within the, the sprint or whatever the cadence is. Um, I don't use that word, by the way. What sprint or cadence? Yeah, S the okay. S word. <laughs> you won't use the S word. We'll say iter is iteration okay? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Okay. Um, You've I seen the Olympics, the right? Yeah. <laughs> it's my it's my pet peeve. Okay, you know, okay. so the Olympics, you co you collapsed after the sprint. It's a wrong <laughs> metaphor. Okay. All right. Um, but I just <laughs> want to make sure the people that are listening understand that what you're talking about delivering is not like it's it's the full vertical slice. I one team that I I saw working told me they were doing scrum perfectly and the design scrum team sat over here and they were on sprint three and the development scrum team was on sprint two and the QA scrum team was on sprint one. And that's completely not what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about as full a slice as is possible. Okay. Right now, maybe you're going to not invest in the UI right away to get the business logic first. And then you might put the UI on as a second, or maybe you go full through the whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, and also but the goal that, is feedback, right? That you're trying to make sure you're doing the right thing. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, we might not, um, 
have hard in my world there's often the case where there's no hardware to even run on so you've got to pretend to be getting inputs and pretend to be providing outputs and you would like to take that you know kind of as far through the system as you can but there's limits like for instance you might not know what the hardware is going to do yet okay <laughs> um because there's oftentimes a negotiation between the hard hardware and software developer. Yeah. There's also limitations on what's possible in the hardware and what you can afford in the hardware. So sometimes the burden might fall more to the software or the burden might fall more to the hardware, depending on the particular thing, you know, so uh, it's a actual huge advantage for the business logic to, I wrote this paper back in probably 2007 about the advantages of not having hardware yet because it okay. forces the developers to abstract what they want from the hardware okay. and make more portable code by accident, right? So All right. when the hardware changes in the future, your code might survive yeah. a move to the new environment where maybe the hardware takes on more capability, uh, performance or whatever, but the software can largely stay unchanged. Okay, so I wanna, I wanna test something with you. So my, my whole background, before I started doing all the agile stuff was traditional project management, like master's degree in that, top PMP certification, all that. And when I think about TDD, the two things that to me, it seems like the main problems it solves are, um, it's gonna solve scope creep. From a, pro from a project manager's perspective, it would help prevent scope creep. And it would also make sure that the stuff we built actually worked instead of building a whole bunch of stuff that worked on one person's machine and we all assume it's going to be fine and then it collapses. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly uh, that's an aspect of it. Um, <clears throat> I think of it like this. So actually test driven can be applied at multiple levels. And I know you're aware okay. of that. Um, so there's the developer's activity, which might be done solo in my case, because I, you know, I do my work alone. I don't have any employees to help right. me with that. Um, but it might be done with a few people together and mob programming or pair and pair programming or solo. But okay. whose responsibility is it to make sure that your code does what you think it's supposed to do? It's a question I ask developers and it's like, they usually say, well, it's my responsibility to make sure the code does what I think it's supposed to do. Um, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the product does what the customer needs? Ah. That's a different, yeah. that's a different set of people. Right. And right. so, um, and we all have an ownership stake in that. Right. Okay. Okay. But it's not just a developer. So developers TDD is about my code does what I think it's supposed to do. And by the way, I might be wrong. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now most developers don't add that other part and I might yeah, be wrong because they're never wrong. They usually think they're right. Yeah. But uh, Hey, I'm, a, I'm what I can say. I'm self-reflecting. Are you? <laughs> it's like, okay. So, um, right. So when we're talking about getting the whole system to work right now, we need that feedback. And then when we discover that something's not right, so you're looking for, you know, why would somebody bother to do it? One, it helps you get things right in the first place, like you were okay. suggesting. Um, it also helps you keep things working, right? Keep things working. Okay. So we discover a small thing that I had wrong, required the feature to not behave as you wanted it. We discover that now. Maybe we can write an acceptance test that reveals it. And now I can also see which when I make that change to the code to do the right thing, I can see which unit tests fail or I could have test driven in the new behavior. And if anything unintended happens, I get notified. Okay. Right now, you project manager people probably think if I ask for a feature, programmers feel 
as long as I give them the new feature, I'm allowed to break any random thing in the system. Do you ever do you ever get the feeling like we think that's okay? I, I, I feel like the developers are sure they're never going to do that until they do, and then it's somebody else's fault. Well, okay. It is. <laughs> it's their previous them's fault. Well, you know, it's a hard thing. Yeah. These systems are complicated. And so there's connections between things. And we're not capable of remembering all the connections. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was young, I thought I was. I was wrong. I'm sure I was wrong. Um, now when I'm older, I know I can't. And the tests are part of that safety, right? That help me make sure that the changes are intended. Okay. And can you be 100% successful? No, but you can be a lot closer to that if you happen to have an executable uh, specification okay. that's keeping your code in line. So getting the code working in the first place right. uh, specifies what your code is supposed to do, uh, keeps your code working as you make changes to it. And as you change your mind, designs need to change to test, select, enable refactoring. So there's a lot of power behind this. I'm just so shocked still after 20 years of practicing, you know, how much, how more profound its impact is on development work than I ever, ever would have thought in the beginning. So I want to try to set something up. I'm hoping for, I'm assuming that some of the people listening don't have familiarity with it or how it works. So I'm hoping you can kind of walk through that at a programming level. But one of the <clears> things when I first heard about it that I thought was so cool was I had been working with a bunch of developers who would write a bunch of code and then write a test that proved that the code did what they made the code do, which oftentimes had no relationship to what the thing was supposed to do in the requirements or anything like that. It was just like whatever they felt like, you know, jamming in there because it seemed cool. Yeah. Um, and half of it didn't work and it caused all kinds of problems. And then we had all this <clears throat> rework and technical debt and stuff like that. So could you talk through how this would work and, and how to solve some of those problems? Yeah. So uh, let me, uh, yeah. So a user story, okay. for instance. Okay. We just called them stories in the beginning, by the way, that was a term from extreme programming user got, prepended by, I think, Mike Cohn or something. But uh, okay. so just a story of what the system is supposed to do. Um, and one of the, I'm just picturing Ron Jeffries now. Um, oh, it's not I a spec. Be, I'm frown. I could pretend to be Ron and look really great. Yeah, yeah. He would have, he would have been frowning and he would have been asking, he would <laughs> contemplating asking you a question. You go, well, um, how would I test that? Or Kent, you know, Kent might be asking that. How would I test it? You know, so you asked me for something and I would say, well, how would you test it? Because you know, it's okay. probably kind of, you're going to say something it will be vague to me, um, but you'll make it a little bit more specific, you know? So it's like, uh, how would you test it? And you would give me, uh, you know, so home automation, that's an example I use in my, uh, uh, in my book and in my courses. Yeah. Okay. So you want lights to be scheduled to, to come on to make it look like you're not home. That's your story. Okay. It's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, uh, you know, so if, if you're going to be going on a business trip, you want, um, a light to turn on Mondays at eight o'clock and turn off at 11, okay. something like that. You know, as I'd say, well, you know, how would you test it? Well, I would program a light to be turned on at a certain time. And then I would have it programmed to turn off at a certain time. And I'd sit around and wait for it to do that. That's how I'd know if it worked. Okay. Um, okay. So now if you can give me an example, now we both have Same a target that's yeah. unambiguous, right? And so one of the things with tests is there are discrete examples. So this is kind of specifying your system by example. Uh, but if we can start with an example, I would do, you know, so if we had a light scheduled for eight o'clock, it turns on at eight. 
What if I showed you that? Would that be valuable? Yeah. Okay. Now I know you're on the right track. Right. What did that look like in the UI? What does that look like in the base of the code? Right. Yeah. Uh, what, how does it behave? Right. So there's a number of questions we can answer and risk we could reduce by me showing that to you. So test driven is we first had a conversation about how you want that tested. Now I go into the code with that understanding and I've got these pieces I have to build that meet that need. And I can play that same game with each of the pieces. Okay. So right? you're, so you're the approaching pieces, it from like a, a mental standpoint too, thinking that through as opposed to just starting out by, I, in my head, I, I guess I was thinking the first thing the developer does is just write the test, but it's a mental exercise first. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, so there would be, a, I mean, the test that we talked about was kind of high level because it impacts a lot of parts of the system. Right. All right. The core thing that does that functionality, I could probably ignore everything else and write a test for it and just say, I don't know how the UI works or how the hardware works, but I can work start working on that one thing because this is a business rule we know, right? So okay. we could probably focus in on that and write a test for that. Although um, in my world of C and C++, it's hard to make changes. And so okay. uh, what we'd like to do is envision how a system is put together. And I don't okay. mean going off on a multi-week, multi-month uh, analysis and design. I mean, spending a few minutes just saying, given this responsibility, what are the different, given this idea of what we want the system to do, right. what are the different responsibilities we heard about? Okay, well, we heard about keeping track of a schedule. Okay. Uh, we heard about it when it becomes a certain time, there's something about time. And then we knew we were turning on or off a light. So there's three responsibilities there. So I'd want to be thinking of those responsibilities initially. And okay. depending on your skills at design, different people can just hear the turn on a light thing and envision all that. Or maybe we got to go to a whiteboard and kind of paint a picture of how this all works together. Where's that UI? Oh, the UI is maybe on a smartphone or on a wall panel. Okay. Um, you know, message comes in through a, a network connection about what to do. It's like, okay, now that I can ignore that for a little while, but I, it's important information to know I've got two computers talking to each other because there's a whole new universe of complexity right there that we have to deal with. But uh, if it was all self-contained system, it's a different level. So I got to have an idea of the context of where this thing is going to be running. Okay. And, uh, you know, once you have that, you can decide what am I going to pay attention to now and what am I going to pay attention to later? I call okay. it the uh, growing your skills of procrastination. And uh, uh, test-driven is really about... Uh, being very deliberate in how you procrastinate, you know, an iterative and incremental development is purposeful procrastination. Okay. We know we don't really have a product for six months, but if we could have a little tiny feature of it, what would that look like? <laughs> right? What, which one do we do now? What are we going to do later? You couldn't survive a day without procrastination. It is a skill we should hone and embrace. <laughs> All right. So if it's, and, and I'm, I'm asking this to somebody who's really trying to like get it straight in my head. Yeah. You said the light goes on at eight, goes off at 11 or something like that. Yeah. So I'm thinking the first thing I, I want is a test that says if it's, if it's between 8 PM and 11 PM, the light is on. If it's not, the light is off. Oh, no, because no. you might turn it off. You may turn it off manually. Ah, okay. Okay. Now, now I might say to you, it's like, Oh, so you want it to be on for that whole duration. You mean the user can't override that? And maybe there would be a story about that. Okay. Because maybe this is like a store and you don't want the lights turned off in the store. Yeah. Okay. But if okay. it's your house, 
It's like, no, you know, that light came on and I'm watching TV. I don't want the light on. I turned it off. Okay. Right. You know, so um, it means at precisely at eight, it turns on and precisely at 11, it turns off. And then you're going to say to me, precisely, well, then that doesn't really look like I'm really home because I'm, I don't do anything with that precision. I come in a little bit earlier or late, you know, 7.45 or maybe 8.10. Yeah. Uh, you know, usually around 8 is when I come into this room at night and watch, you know, whatever my favorite TV show is or news. And I go to bed at different times. I don't always go to bed, turn off the lights at 11. It's got to be kind of random. It's like, oh, huh, here's another story. You know, get another note card out and uh, you want it to be randomized. You know, what's the earliest it should come on for randomized light? Okay. You know, now we got to think, okay, how it, and then is it anywhere in that random period or does it need to be gathered around the nominal time? Is it a bell-shaped curve? You know, statistically, what do you want, how do you want it to behave? Is it more closer? So there's. (laughs) So as you're thinking through it, it, this, the thing that seems really simple, light goes on at eight, goes off at 11 kind of mushrooms into a lot of different cards or stories. That's right. Um, I have heard a lot of developers like they would, with what you just said, they would be like, yeah, I don't want to break that down. That's going to be like 50 freaking stories. That's too much work, but it is that much work either way. Right. Well, okay. So here is, uh, yeah. Well, and then when you break it down to 15 stories, you find out that you can get by with eight of them. Okay. Right. So, so by taking the time to walk through all the different exceptions and the randomization and all the other stuff, it's going to help you realize that maybe that's when you get to that yagging thing, right? Like you're not actually going to need it to be able to do this. And it's possible they could actually deliver. Let's just say they they said, no, we're doing this one big thing because I don't want to. It's too much work to break it down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then they're late. And it takes them two iterations to deliver it. Okay. And then you're still not happy with it because like they they missed your point on what you really wanted. Yeah. Okay. Now, if I deliver you, if I show you after th- the first three days, several of the pieces and you go, yeah, you're on the right track. Or if I'm off a little bit, you can help steer me back on track. And by the end of that iteration, I've delivered seven of your 15 things. We signed up for six, but we delivered seven. Okay. That's cool. Okay. You know, you like me now. The next iteration, um, I miss guessed on a few of the things on how big they were. And we only delivered five of the seven things. Mm-hmm. You give me a get out of jail free card because I delivered an extra one last time. Right. Okay. But I delivered five. I didn't, it's the whole thing isn't missing. Yeah. Most of my functionality is there. And there's a little thing, you know, so slicing is hugely powerful for making sure that you're delivering the right thing. Okay. Um, now, once you've delivered a few, the later ones, you might just be able to, do more quickly if they're variations on the the beginning, right? Or you but if they're all that you've built that into what you were like, you knew that you were going to ask for the randomization later on. So when you created the code that made sure it was going to go on at eight and go off at eleven, you wrote that in a way that would make it easy to add the randomization later. Well, we we knew it. We knew that was coming, so yeah. that could impact. We could make it. You know, if you're at a fork in the road, you don't put in the randomization before you're working on it, but if I have to make a decision in my, yeah, I know it's coming for the best. Sometimes I don't know stuff is coming, right? We don't, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but this randomization, let's say we knew it was coming. And if there was a fork in the road where that became important, I could choose which fork makes it easier in the future. Um, 
let's throw a different thing. I didn't know you wanted to control the window blinds in the house. Okay. You never mentioned that. So we built scheduling all around lights, not a generalized scheduling. Now, if I, if I happen to know that I was going to need to generalize it later, it might have impacted my, the way I architected the scheduler if I only ever thought okay. I was going to do lights. Um, probably wouldn't change the first delivery at all. But in my mind, if, if I know I'm going towards something where they're going to separate those things, yeah. um, I might make a different design choice earlier on that just makes that easier later when I get to the blinds. Okay. Um, so what would be the first test that you would write? I mean, you write the test and then you write the code that passes the test. Yeah. So with the light example, what's the first test that you would write? Uh, the first test I would write is uh, kind of be kind of crazy. Uh, you turn the system on and nothing happens. Okay, the scheduler. Why, why that way? Why would you write it that way? It's really easy to get it to pass. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> the system is not supposed to do anything. Yeah. When you initialize it. And the only thing it could do is turn on a light. Okay. Okay. So as long as it doesn't, I've got a control group now. Then what would you do? Well, you know, these lights are scheduled to, are supposed to be responding every minute. Is okay. They only have one chance a minute to turn on. Then I would write a test that cycles through some minutes and nothing happens because there's nothing in the schedule yet. Okay. Then so I would put something in the schedule. I'd put something in the schedule uh, for the eight o'clock light. And guess what time I would pretend it was? Eight o'clock. 759. 7.59. Because again, easy for it to not, yeah. easy for me to get it to pass because I don't need anything. <laughs> so is it that the first thing is that the, the system's not doing anything and then it's that the system is polling once a minute to see if it should do something and then based on the time that's been set for the trigger, if yeah. it is that time, then the light should be on. Very good. Okay. Yeah. But is it going to keep testing while the light's on or does it just. Oh, no. So it's a it's an event driven. OK. okay? Because you can override it. OK. okay. The, and we, this would be the. Oh, you mean the light needs to stay on for that full duration. It's like, well, some lights, you know, like the outdoor lights in my house, I don't want them turn offable. OK. At night. But the ones inside you know, our living spaces, they can be overridden. It's like, yeah. oh, so there's two different kinds of schedule. There's a. A duration schedule, right? And there's a like an interrupt kind of you know on-off schedule, okay? Right, and just make sure the light is off at eleven, because it might already be off. I don't want to turn it on to turn it off, right? Okay. And make sure it comes on at eight, or you know, randomly around eight when we get to randomization. So it seems to me like it's just sort of a mental model when it was. Um, when it was introduced, did this completely like tip over the way people thought about the work in the same way that like object oriented tipped over the way people thought about the work? Yes, it did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, we, we always work incrementally. We just don't, we just pretend that we don't. I mean, yeah. pre test driven, uh, we wrote a lot of code. Yeah. I've, I've watched a lot of programmers program and, um, I've also uh, watched pr programmers program not test driven. Okay. And it's not like we actually are very organized and we just have all these ideas and just write the code like this. Yeah, We write the code all over the place. We're going back and forth and it's a rare person that can just, Go if, I don't think I've ever met them that just can get it right the first time. You've, there's back and okay. forth.
Um, the, uh, but we thought we could write code and debug it into working. That was how we used to work. So it's like, oh, let me focus on the code, then I'll focus on testing. Um, now, when you get around to testing, you start to find out all the things you didn't do right. Yeah. Now, the problem is with testing is after the fact testing is you don't know when to stop. Right. So it's hard to know when to stop. Okay. Um, and you're when you're doing after the fact testing, debugging, debug later programming, right. you work in small steps then to get rid of all the bugs. But you gotta you might find get, them one at a time, right? You find them one at a time and you've got to bring your mind back into them, which you got disconnected from it a while ago. Yeah. Now you bring your mind back into it. You got to reset. If it was six months, you know, since you wrote the code or somebody else wrote the code, it's hard to get your head back in it, right? That's a hard thing to do. Okay. Uh, where test-driven is a proactive thing. It's like, what if my, my code doesn't do anything yet? What could it do? <laughs> Well, it could yeah. do this one thing, okay? And then I start to one behavior. It's a different mindset. So instead of writing code to meet a bunch of behaviors, we write code one behavior at a time. And you're like stacking them until you get to the thing where I have this system in my house that I can schedule it and the lights will turn it on and off with a little bit of randomization to make it seem like I haven't actually gone away on vacation. <laughs> um, yeah. And I can also turn them on and off if I come into the house and I want to. That's right. Yep. Okay. Well, so I mean, that takes some time to evolve that. So yeah. I think my Bob, uh, my friend uh, Bob Martin, I think said it really well. It's like we use these discrete tests. These my these are not his words, but this is his idea. Discrete tests, which you could probably give to Chat GPT and it could just write code for it. Okay. Um, but it probably wouldn't be very. Uh, it probably wouldn't actually be the general solution, it would be pass, the thing would would ex have that execution profile that the tests describe, but it might not be the general thing we have in mind. Every time we add a test, a specific test, the human makes a choice to make the code more general. Okay. So when we added randomization and we tested, you know, if the random minute generator said minus 13 minutes, you know, did it come on, did the light come on at 13 minutes before eight? That's a discrete test case. Yeah, they covered that covered any random number. Right. Right. Not there's nothing special about minus thirteen. <laughs> okay, just okay. whatever number it spits up. Okay. okay, but you as a, a human picks gen, you know picks test cases to help us generalize so that we exer fully exercise the code, know what the code is doing. Okay, does this one of the things that I've heard people raise concerns about? It's the same thing with pairing. Is that there's a perception that this is going to take longer. Hmm. And my response to that is always, well, it might take a little bit longer to write it, but from a testing standpoint or a quality standpoint, you're going to spend a lot less time debugging after the fact, right? Yeah. I used to believe that too. What, that it would take but, longer? Yeah, that it would, for, the initial code would take longer. Is that not that true? And that the future was the payback. Is that not um, true? It's not. I don't believe for someone that's taken the time to learn test driven, it's not yeah. true. So it does and take actually, longer. It does not take longer. It does not. Okay. Why? You have to. <clears throat> well, you first have to learn test driven, so that takes some time. So in the beginning, it will take longer and feels weird. So it's going to definitely take longer. Well, you think it takes longer because it feels so foreign. 
Okay. Now I, I use a, I have a programming example, which I've given to people on the net, random people to just solve however they want. Okay. And I also use it as the first example in my training classes. Okay. <clears throat> and we spend about 90 minutes in my training classes doing this programming example. And uh, about half the people in the class will, outside their comfort zone, finish it doing test-driven development in 90 minutes. Okay. The best time in the wild for someone doing debug later programming that I've seen is an hour and 45 minutes. Okay. 15 minutes longer than the newbie outside their comfort zone. Okay. Now, it's a simple problem, so it might not be representative, but it's a data point, which I found kind of surprising. I thought it was going to take longer. I wasn't sure, but, you know. But once you no. get once you get your head around the model and, and develop some skill with it, it'll actually go a little bit quicker. Yeah, Maybe I find breaking out these smaller pieces, I guess. Yeah, I, I find it's much faster for me. I, okay. So on my website, I didn't know Ruby or Rails when I was building my website. And so I wrote a lot of legacy code, untested code. Okay. Um, now I've been making up for my, uh, I don't want to call them sins of the past because it makes it sound like it's a religion. And, uh, oh, well, okay. Um, it isn't a religion. Okay. It's engineering. And so I make up for some of the mistakes of my past. Okay. Right now by re-engineering some of the things. Actually, I feel like the, the fact that I made it work by any means first mm -hmm. was, I justify this because it's only impacting me. Okay. Yeah. And I've been able to keep the quality of it high, but now I've gotten to the point where I know what I want it to do and to keep the quality of it high, I can't keep it structured the way it is. So I, I redesigned the key part of this over the last month, okay. um, which is fun for me, right? And I got to really live the TDD in Ruby on Rails. Yeah. And now if I make any little change, there's a window right here next to your uh, screen here right. that if I made any little change right now, this window would activate and say, your tests still pass. Right. Or would they would just say, you just broke, you just broke your test. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I know it within seconds. And if I want to see how it looks on the browser, I've got another virtual machine running, you know, okay. a web server so I can actually look at the output. So the feedback, um, because we make mistakes, mm -hmm. here's my, the big selling point for me for, uh, that I use as a first, uh, starter problem to get okay. people interested in TDD is, you know, uh, do you want to do less debugging? Okay. Now I've come to discover by following test driven that I make mistakes multiple times per minute. Okay. Not, not per day, you know, per hour, per day, okay. it's per minute. <laughs> now I'm pretty bad at typing. And also we're not really good at programming. Um, now some people, well, we've accomplished wonderful things. It's amazing what we've done. I'm surprised any of it works. Um, and it's hard to get things, get programs right in the first time, the first time. You kind of lose sight of that if your feedback loop is long. Yeah. If you do the test-driven approach, which is write a test, it fails. Now you make it pass. And all the other tests have to keep passing. If you do that cycle, when you make a mistake, it's in your face. And you get to see how often you make mistakes. And you become very aware of how often you make mistakes. And like I said, I'm mine have at least one a minute. <laughs> Okay. You know, when my fingers are on the keyboard, it's at least one a minute. And I'd have to find that a different way. 
And it turns out this is just really effective at finding it quickly. Okay. So now, you're finding it faster and it's also while your head's still in this space as opposed exactly. to- Exactly. Your head is in the, yep, your head's in the problem space. And so you can, uh, you, you can resolve the problem more quickly. Uh, one of the funny things that will happen is maybe my new test passes and four other tests break. Yeah. Now this is this is a point when uh, a programmer will say, "Oh, hmm, it would have taken me taken me a while to figure those that out, you know, without the feedback." Narrow it down to where it was coming from because I might not have seen that for a week. In a yeah. you know, in a week's time, I might not have bumped into that scenario in my manual testing, mm -hmm. and now I've got to go back through, you know, what <laughs> when did that problem get introduced? Yeah, right. Um, for wherever you happen to have effective tests, if it can tell you right away when you break something, that's the best time that you could fix it. Okay. So now I'll put on my uh, developer hat. The new thing I just added broke for existing things. Um, Dave, should I break four things or give you your one new thing? I don't even need to ask you. <laughs> right. right. I know you don't want four things broken, so I back out my change and rethink. How do I do the thing I just, how do I get okay. this new behavior and not break those other four things, right? Okay. And so, uh, yeah, when that happens, that's like, I remember that light bulb going on in people's heads in my courses. It's like, oh, this could be valuable. Look at what just happened. Yeah. I exactly. wouldn't have seen that for, you know, would have taken me a while to see that one. And they would have had to like climb their way back through to, to get yeah. to where they were. Okay. Yeah, right. So you're going to do this talk this is a three-hour workshop, so you're going to be going through how to actually do this with people at the conference? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got a, a friend of mine, Daniel Markham, who's going to join me. He's going to be my co-accomplice, uh, uh, if you will, okay. in this endeavor. And um, I try to recreate a, an experience for developers like the one that I had when I first learned, which is you sit down with someone that knows test-driven, and you work through a problem together. And the way I do that is... Um, by now, no one will ever do this again for the people here, which is I wrote a bunch of tests, several starter tests, have them all commented out. Okay. And they, with the beginner's mind, have to enable one test, read the comment block in front of it and say, why are we picking this test? Okay, we have a reason for picking this first test. And here it is. Now go make that pass with a simple change and grow the solution okay. to the code. Um, and so they get to kind of experience that. And then uh, <clears throat> my uh, uh, colleague and I and maybe a few other volunteers will help looking for people that are stuck, you know, maybe on uh, how to uh, take the next step. And then we'll intervene and maybe do some demos and such. Okay. As yeah, will they need to bring out. their laptops with them or, or computers with them? Or are you going to have that? Yeah, people bring their laptops with them. Okay. And we'll, I'll recommend that people work in uh, pairs or small groups. And uh, that's because pairs and small groups get things done faster. <laughs> well, so that, Another and that's fallacy. a great, great option for people who might not be familiar with pairing or who haven't done it or are uncomfortable with it. This would be a place where they can yep. practice both things. That's right. You know, people are often uncomfortable, probably for the reason I was. And, you know, as a 20-year experienced developer, when I saw a pair program, it's like, I mean, I have to sit next to somebody and show them how much stuff I don't know. Um, you know, when I'm supposed to be this experienced guy, it's like, yeah. I'm going to sit next to you and, you know, you're going to know James doesn't have this knowledge at his fingertips. That's intimidating. Right. 
but then I find out that you don't have it either. And it's like, oh, Dave doesn't? Wow, it's not possible that Dave doesn't have that at his fingertips. But then you can and support you each realize, other and help each other with that, right? Yeah, you help each other, work through it. You know, programming is problem solving. And the sold adage, two ads are better than one, yeah. um, does apply to programming, right? You know, so uh, two people don't get stuck on the little things. Because yeah. where I might be missing something, you can fill in the gap. Or if we were together, it's like, well, what are you trying to do now? And then we might get some insight by talking. Talking through it. Uh, yeah, okay. so it's a... It's not like it's always mischaracterizes one person sitting back scrutinizing the work, right? You did that wrong. No, it's not that. Yeah. Okay. You know, who wants that? Nobody wants that, you know. Yeah. Um, but actually people are very surprised in my training classes because most most time all the people have only ever programmed solo. And I kind of make them program together in a nice way. Yeah. And they find out, oh, that wasn't so bad. Actually, that was fun, you know, yeah. so it kind of brought some fun back into it. They learned more, okay. um, you know, they think, oh, I'm the senior person, this junior guy next to me, they're going to learn a lot from me. And then you find out it's the other way around. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, I've got two more questions. I want to, two more topics okay. I want to hit on real quick before we okay. return. Um, from what you described, I'm assuming that when the pandemic hit, you were pretty much ready to go. But I had probably had a couple classes already scheduled and, Okay. You know, the world freaked out, so they dropped out of my classes, but I could keep going. Yeah. Okay. But you also mentioned that because of the kind of training you're doing, you, you ended up developing your own software to, to run the trainings, right? You know, um, I spent several months looking for a good platform. A friend of mine, Joe Rainsberger, suggested Teachable. He said it's not perfect, but it's not bad. Okay. And so I put a bunch of my content into Teachable which is, um, you know, for somebody used to the way I deploy my website is I make changes, check it into Git, go to my website, you know, go to the backup website, make sure everything works there, go to the main one, pull my changes, you know, in 20 seconds, I can have all my recent changes go live. Okay. Um, all that is how I want to work. With Teachable, if I want to upload new, you know, if I change five videos, that means I have to go to the five places where those videos are. Right. Upload them to the right place. I'm totally capable of uploading them to the wrong place. Um, having the, the upload fail and me not noticing it, now the old yeah. video is still up there or no videos there. Um, having the words go out of date because I use the same words here as I used over there and I forgot to change one of them. All this is very annoying. You know, okay. but if it, if I have it in a um, automated system where I can deploy my new content right. and it's mechanical because I've put the effort into making it mechanical, that's where I'm comfortable. I couldn't use okay. Deachable. I couldn't use any of the systems that claimed, you know, to be so wonderful for delivering. All right, so we were recording and my system collapsed around its ears again. Um, but we were, James, we were talking about the, the system that you developed to, to lead your trainings. Yes, yeah, so uh, I think before we brought, we left, it was, uh, I was telling you a little bit about Teachable. Nothing wrong with Teachable, but it just was not good for me because if I made a change, I'd have to go, you know, I repurpose 
my content. It goes here, it goes there. Right. And if I've got to put it in three places, I might on a good day remember two of them. Um, just the way I work, I understand this about myself. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be sustainable. Okay. So I built my own system and I have a lot of fun doing it. And the uh, first version really was about really understanding what I want to help run my business. And then uh, to make the, uh, the system really support my three main uses. One is live in-person training, which I don't do that much of anymore. I do a little bit of it. Okay. Uh, remote delivered training, which is kind of what I, you know, where most of my uh, time is spent when I'm getting paid by somebody. Okay. Uh, it's live remote. And then I'm also working on a self-paced course so that I can get to more people. I've done a lot of recording of um, my content short videos, okay. programming exercises and such, right? And so to make that easy, make a change here on my my system and be able to automatically deploy it, that's what I needed. And with Teachable and the other tools I looked at, I couldn't do that. Those tools are good for people that aren't computer nerds like me, but for a computer nerd, you need something that's going to, you know, be more less less error prone, not more error prone. Okay. So what's really cool to me is when you talk about this stuff, it sounds like you're constantly invested in improving the, maybe the efficiency of the work or just doing things to make your life easier so that you don't have to spend as much time dealing with stuff that could be handled by some process. Yeah. Making life easier. Um, boring. Any boring manual process you do is an opportunity to automate. Okay. Uh, I used to uh, collect about receipts about this thick every year yeah and one year i was out to in 2014 i was out to dinner with bob martin maybe it was late 2013 and he just took a picture of his receipt and emailed it to his assistant it's like oh that's cool i don't have an assistant <laughs> so you built but one i did well kind of uh so now i basically spend every, whenever i need a receipt you know to keep uncle sam happy or yeah. Maybe I have to report to a client what I spent somewhere. Um, I make a little PDF of the receipt. Okay. And I name it in such a way that I know what it was all about. And one time on a trip, I decided instead of going touristing in uh, the Netherlands, I worked on a Python script to go find those files and notice which ones are business receipts and which ones are personal and put them away where they need to go on my computer. Wow. And so I didn't, now my accountant's like, don't worry if you get audited, everything's fine. You've got all your records yeah. You keep good. You know, everything's put where it's supposed to be. You'd have no problems. <laughs> They'd be overwhelmed. <laughs> so, and I don't have to give them, you know, yeah. shoe boxes full of receipts. Yeah. I have bags um, of them in the closet. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, so yeah, automation, uh, get rid of boring things, error prone things and uh, try to automate more. Cool. Uh, and it's fun, you know, and, you know, it comes down to it's fun to do too. So. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Thank you. So the last thing I <laughs> want to ask you about is I want to ask you about planning poker and it's kind of coming out of the recent flurry of conversation where there's a bunch of people talking smack about story points and that whole process, because they really feel like flow metrics are the only one true way you're going to understand when things will be done, which I understand the case for that. But for me, when I'm working with teams and we're doing planning broker, um, the value that I get is never the number. It's just the conversation. Yeah. And, and I wanted to 
get your take on it since you're the creator of it. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, the first planning poker game was to get people to shut up, not to communicate. Okay. <laughs> Which, uh, that's kind of a surprising thing. Um, although the number one uh, benefit that people cite is it gets people talking. And I was trying to get some people to shut up. So um, imagine this room with eight people in it. And I'm a new coach because everybody was a new coach. Yeah. You know, in the year 19, uh, the year 2000, there right. were no experienced extreme programming coaches. Right. Um, I probably was the most experienced one with two weeks. Um, <laughs> and so I'm helping facilitate this meeting, uh, which I'd never really done before to help estimate work. <clears throat> and the two experts, the architects, were going back and forth for about an hour on each story and deciding on a number and uh, deciding on a number. And they were agreeing for the whole hour, it seemed like. Right. With, and then we'd move on to the next one. <laughs> we were going to never finish our, yeah. our planning because it just was taking so long. So after a break, here's a uh, kind of a replica of the first playing poker card, except, oh, these are, they wouldn't have been these colors. Yeah, okay. We need colors. Weird to show a green yeah. thing here. You know. <laughs> but they were index cards. They were index cards. Yeah. Yep. Index cards. And people wrote a number on them, and then it looked like we're playing poker after a little while. Okay. Uh, but actually, we found what we agreed on. And the purpose, one of the brainstorming techniques I learned in the 80s uh, with TQM was, uh, how do we find our areas of agreement so we can action those? And then the things that we disagree on, we could talk about that more or put it off, okay. procrastinate. <laughs> um, and so we found areas of agreement. You know, do you agree? Uh, not do you agree. Everybody would show their card all at the same time. Right. Looked like we were playing a game of poker, which I like to play poker in other card games. So uh, uh, Bob Martin was it, it suggesting I write at that time. So I wrote the little story of that. And Mike Cohn found it and put it in his book, made it famous. So that's cool. And, and made his cards. But, uh, but what about the numbers, which yeah. is really – so I'm on a tangent. I'll go back to what you wanted. What about the numbers on these cards? And I'm in a way, I'm in the flow group's perspective. Okay. And – I've got a foot in both, though. I think it kind of depends on your context. For instance, if I'm building an embedded system where hardware, software, mechanical, all the stuff has to come together, if you don't have a plan, there's no way you're going to ever finish your product. Sure. Okay. Now, I thought you said a really good thing. It's like, I kind of want to know what the numbers are, but I know not to believe them. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that planning poker helped people do was come up with a wrong estimate quickly. Okay, right? yeah. Now, I think one of the realizations is it's wrong. Yep. All right? That's why it's called okay. an estimate. Now, about a year after planning poker, my friend Lowell Lindstrom, do you know Lowell? Yeah, you, yep. yep. Okay, because he's in your CSPO yep. group, right? He's part of the part of that group. Yeah. Um, he said, hey, let's try something else. Also from TQM, affinity grouping. Yeah. And uh, so I... Decided, oh, uh, time for another blog post. And I call that the planning poker party. Um, it's on my blog. Um, but at any rate, the idea would be get all the stories onto the table and put them in an organization such that uh, the easy ones are over here and the not so easy ones are next to them and the harder ones are as you go across the table. Yeah. It helps to have a pool table like that just to lay everything down on. So, you know, if your customers are 
Keep people with doing this. You need to buy a pool table just so you can estimate yeah. work. That's right. You can estimate your work. Okay, so you lay those out on the pool table. And then, you know, once you've got everything about where you think, you know, the easy ones over here, the hard ones over there, then you can put numbers on them. Okay. Um, now, what are the numbers good for? Uh, a budgetary number. Kind of funny, I did this with a group in St. Louis a number of years ago, maybe about 10 years ago. And they had just spent a month doing an analysis and design on their product. Yeah. And they came up with this figure. I wanted to say, you know, 18 months to develop the product that they wanted to develop. And we spent a morning. They said, no, this is worthless. We already did this work. Okay, sure. Just to humor you, we'll go through it. Right. Um, and in two and a half hours, we came up with the same number they spent a month on. Now, maybe there's a chicken and egg. Maybe we came up with the number because of the other thing that they did. But they were as surprised as I was. Yeah. That the estimates were the same. Okay. Now, I went back to them a year and a half later and they said, no, we're still not done. We're probably off by 100%. Okay. So the estimates were wrong. Right. What should we do? Spend two hours on an estimate being wrong? Or weeks. Or spend a month yeah. of five people's time being wrong. Half a man year of effort. Yeah. Let's spend the two hours. Okay. Let's do that instead. Uh, it's going to be wrong. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, now let's see, I've got a whole drawer full of these things over here somewhere. Picked up from trade shows, of course, you know what I've got here. Somebody's brand X planning poker cards, yep. right? With the Fibonacci sequence on it. The actual Fibonacci sequence or the Fibonacci-ish sequence that a lot of people use? Yeah, the Fibonacci-ish or whatever it might the be, you know, with version. some special random cards yeah. in it too. Um, it gives people the wrong idea, okay? So um, when, you, when you put a 13 out there, it gives somebody the idea that there's more precision there than there is. Okay. Because 13 is very, 13 is kind of precise. Now 20, they said, oh, 20, the next Fibonacci number would be 21, but we'll just use 20. So they break, okay. you know, so they're modifying, uh, they're not using Fibonacci. Yeah. Fibonacci, you know, it's like as if there was some natural law in, in math that said estimates work this way. They don't. Here's the thing, the underlying principle here is the ones and twos, and this is where I agree with the flow people, the ones and twos are probably the only ones that you understand well enough to really work on and complete oh, a set of those in an iteration. Okay. Um, I would use monetary units because the math is so much easier. I would use ones, twos, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. Okay. Um, and realize because of the big gaps, we don't know. <laughs> okay. These are these are high risk. Yeah. The lower numbers. Okay, you can spend one or two dollars. In an iteration, the fives, the fives, I think we should split those up. Yeah. Now, what are the big numbers for? Just to give us an idea of how big is this thing that we're attacking. And by the way, if you've got a hundred dollar, you know, Item. pile of things yeah. over here, and this is where the value for your new product is, you better start figuring out how to reduce risk and take those hundreds and turn them into something actionable because yeah. they're not actionable as a hundred. One of the first teams I went into, they were working on a they're planning, uh, and they showed me one of their stories, and it said 8,000 hours. It's like 8,000 hours? And it's like, so I did the math. It's like, okay, what time of the day on such and such a day? And, <laughs> you know, these years, such and such, will it be done on that? And, you know, it's like you're missing the point here. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, the flow people, I think, have something right there, which is we're capable of working on a couple things at once. Mm -hmm. 
small-ish, where we, how would you test it? We can answer that question. Yeah. As soon as you get to a five or a 10 or it's a 20, it's going to be too vague. Okay. And then we got to start asking, how would you test it? And that's where you get your ones and twos. Okay. And then you can actually work on those. So that's, you know, uh, are we insane for being here at all? That's why you did the whole big estimate to see how big that mountain is. Right. And what does a mountain mean? Hmm. Well, is it how much we're willing to spend on something? You know, yeah. you could use these for budgetary numbers. If I could get something for 100 effort, you know, I'd be willing to spend 100 on this. Which hundred? What out of this 100 card should we do? That's a yeah. different question than doing this 100 card because we don't know what a 100 card is. Right. But if I'm willing, you know, you as a product owner, if I'm willing to spend 100 okay. for something like this, you know, what would that be? Right. You know, so. Okay. Yeah, and I a, also I imagine if it's if it's a hundred or or eight thousand hours, yeah, it's just so poorly, like you said, poorly understood that whatever you're even flailing at in terms of guessing is going to be so far off the mark. I mean, let's just realize it. Point, yeah. yeah, let's not pretend. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing this because you gave me a whole different way of thinking about it, with the ones and the twos being small enough and clear enough to actually do and the rest of it just being indicators that you don't really know what you're talking about so maybe you should just figure that out before you try working on it yeah so next time you're with a team and they're you know ask them how's your track record of getting stories done yeah and they might say not so great and it's like okay so uh which ones do you typically get done well we get ones in you know i don't know i don't want to i don't want to ask too many leading questions but um you know which of these things are you going to get done? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's a big story, do they get done? No, we usually discover, you know, this is when I've questioned people or questioned, interviewed, yeah. if you will. Um, the big things are vague. And so that, you know, so it's easy to miss that, right? Or to have missed expectations, yeah. right? You've got one thing in mind. I've got something else in mind. We can make it more specific. So cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming up with both of those methods because it's, it's my favorite part of my classes going through that stuff. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I also have found it, especially as somebody who um, came into it fighting really hard against it because I was a PMP and really wanted to just do everything in hours. Um, yeah. It, it has been a great benefit of the teams that I work with in, in where it leads in us understanding what we do and don't actually get when we're talking about this yeah. stuff. So thank you. Yeah. The, the hours thing was a big, uh, debate in the early days. So, uh, cause we didn't know any better way to estimate things. We were, you know, that was what we were talking about is hours yeah. and in days. And it's like Ron, I think it was Ron who came up with, you know, just their gummy bears, how many gummy bears worth or whatever, you know, he was using some ridiculous thing. It's like some unit that doesn't matter. And then we, yeah. Unitless number. Yeah. Right. And then of course, unitless numbers got gamed because somebody started measuring velocity. Yeah. And you can do the math. You can convert velocity to math. I mean, to hours. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, people start looking for the wrong thing. It's like, where are those missing hours? It's like, no, we're just wrong about the estimates. Yeah. Right. We didn't lose any hours anywhere. You know, it's not about yeah. utilization or, you know, it's like all kinds of dysfunctional things happen around an estimate. Yeah. And when you really just want to know, do we understand it well enough to work on it? And how much trouble are we in? <laughs> Those are, those are really good questions. Like, do we, I mean, just simply, do we understand it well enough to work on it? Um, yeah. I'm going to start sharing that in my classes. 
Um, you know, so, so some of the stories have to be, um, I don't know if you talk about spike stories or uh, research stories and that sort of thing, but quite a bit of the beginning of a development effort, if you're doing anything new and hopefully we're doing something new, yeah. right? Usually it's the innovation, the next thing that's important is new and it does have, you know, unknowns about it. Yeah. How do we start to address those unknowns? I worked on an IoT project. I did a conference talk about this IoT project where at the beginning we thought there were five unknowns. Right. And by the time we opened those five unknowns, there were 10 unknowns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's and just kind of mushroom. You just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Right. Well, so this is, this is great. Thank you yeah. very much for doing this. Um, right. It was a real joy getting to talk to you about this. I appreciate uh, it. Dave, Dave, thank you so much for inviting me. I really uh, loved it. Uh, you're a good interviewer. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you. And yeah. and for those of you who are going to be at the conference, I just want to make sure I actually call out when your session is. So it's on Monday, the 24th, 2 to 5 p.m. in Lafayette 4, and it's called Your First Test-Driven Development. Yep. We're going to program in uh, several languages. Um, the two that I always are, have to work in with my clients, C and C++, but also we'll have uh, C-sharp probably Python, maybe Java available. So okay. there should be something for you. And if you don't program and you just want to see, come and pair with a group, right? We'd love to have you there. And that's, that's a Appreciate great it. idea. So, and thank you very much. So, yeah, yeah. and I'll see you uh, in Florida. In okay, looking weeks. forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Yep. All right. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye.